arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The 1927 New York Yankees was one of the most powerful and most successful teams in baseball history. You had your murderers row of Ruth, Garrick, Lazari, Coombs, and Musel. The Yankees' offense in 1927 was a spectacle never before witnessed on the diamond. Three sluggers hit over 350. Lou Gehrig swatted 52 doubles while Earl Combs registered 231 hits, both franchise records at the time. Babe Ruth's 60 home runs and Lou Gehrig's 175 RBI were major league records, while Combs notched 23 triples, which still ranks as the most in Yankees history. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Fitting on the Air. Once in a lifetime, the dreaded cliché, but an apt description of many things in the novel you are about to hear. Here's the setting. A young guy from Ohio, like many from the hinterland in the 1920s, head with great ambition for the big city. Charlie Russo quickly works his way to the top, and along the way becomes engaged to the owner's daughter, Francine. And then she walks into his life. I can only tell you that she is enthralled with the 1920s time period and Charlie Russo. But Charlie is careening toward an engagement party, and Francine has not been faithful. Need I say any more? Alas, I will. Jamal has a very special mission and lots of enemies, not necessarily human. Okay, let's get this podcast underway. We'll be going to Yankee Stadium in the 1927 Yankees as we begin Once in a Lifetime by Robert P. Fitton. Once in a Lifetime. Chapter 1. Yankee Stadium. The Bronx. Sunday, May 1st, 1927. A great ball club like a remarkable woman comes along once in a lifetime. Charlie listened to the rousing crowd. The spring air, fresh and cleansing, filtered through the ballpark, ruffling the tiny flags atop the stadium wall. The crack of the ball against the bat sent tingles up his arms. If someone had handed him a glove, he'd probably run out on the field. In the midst of the colorful multitude, his eyes were drawn to the babe. Within the month of April, in the record books, Ruth already had six home runs, two in this very game. It might be possible, if he continued at this pace, to break his 1923 record of 59 home runs. The babe trotted around like a bow-leg ox across the outfield, loosening up between the innings. Charlie's eyes darted across the field to Pennock as the ball sizzled into the catcher's mitt. This team had it all. The superb pitching, Only one component complemented the brutal hitting attack. Charlie shook his head as he watched the agile Gehrig throw practice balls across the infield grass. He had never seen a team like this. God, they were good. Not only could they head to the series, but they just might squash everyone else along the way. He looked to his friends back in the seats. They would razz him if they knew earlier he had been oogling the cavalcade of women under the grandstand. He couldn't keep his mind off one particular woman he had seen near the concession. Svelte, with expressive blue eyes, she mysteriously walked under the stands with an odd beeping leather radio box strapped to her shoulder, 
and she had disappeared just as he carried his food from the counter. Joel cupped his hands. Hey, Charlie, either go get some more food or sit your ass down. I need a smoke, said Charlie. He took out a pack of Luckies from his shirt pocket. Ray wrapped his leg. Hey, Francine, know you're at the ballpark, Charlie? Charlie, cigarette hanging from his mouth, squinted at Ray and then lit up. He shook the match and tossed it to the cement as he exhaled. I don't discuss baseball with Francine. Ray leaned toward Joel. Any dame that wouldn't let me go to the ballpark? I know you guys don't like her. It's not that we don't like her, Chuck, said Joel. Charlie squeezed toward the aisle. She's just not right for you. Rumfords have too much dough, added Ray. You never had too much dough, bud. I'm getting some more food. He wanted to find that tall dame. One of the fillies stepped up to the plate. Panic fired a strike. But Charlie had lost interest and plodded down the ramp. Ray had nailed it. Francine would be upset if she knew he'd traveled out to the stadium. Being the boss's daughter certainly helped his career. But the old man liked him and pushed the relationship. Rumors abounded about her alleged affair with a guy named Rick Cerrone from Chicago. And she had seen her old beau, Will Dillingham, on occasion. The Rumfords were stinking with money, and Charlie could look forward to a life of comfort and security. Once under the grandstand girders, he searched for the lady in the blue chiffon frock. The crowd above cheered, and he realized how much he loved the game. He could taste that feeling, a raw combination of hot dogs, onions, and cold beer, accented with passing stale cigars and pungent bags of second-rate peanuts. Starting at the concession, he thought about his ambition and then he began a methodical march under the grandstand. After his arrival from his parents' farm and subsequent graduation from New York University and employment at the Rumford Tower, he remained fueled by a lust for wealth and power. He snuffed out the cigarette on the concrete. Then he saw her. Mother McCree! At first he thought she eyed him with more than just a passing glance. Tall and slender, she flowed within the transient crowd. Not exactly ballpark attire, her blue frock outlined her lean body, and her rusty hair bobbed in the shingle look gave her a certain classiness he liked. Something about her made the aura of mystery drew him closer. He drifted inconspicuously under the grandstand and stared at her large leather case, but this time it admitted no beeps. Sweet jasmine filled the air before he innocently approached. She panned the rafters as if she were a structural engineer. He could not keep his eyes off her tight, tanned face, sprinkled with freckles. As he inched closer, the stadium light cast an iridescent glow within her blue eyes. Miss, I could swear you were watching me. Should I be? She raised her thin brow. Charlie's smile widened. Following me could get you into trouble. You come to the stadium often? She kept studying the girders and then turned abruptly. Perhaps it is you who has been watching me. Who, me? She lifted her brows again, and her tiny mouth evidenced a smile as she turned. Her perky but proper, almost British accent surprised him. To answer your question, I come to the ballpark games not as often as I would like. I'd like to get out here more often, too, said Charlie. Then again, actually being at the ballpark is better than watching newsreels. In her face, he sensed a youthful exuberance and an appreciation of life. But that glint in her eyes suggested she had hidden something inside. She fiddled with the leather case. Charlie folded his arms. Right, it's like reading about the game in the Sun of the Times. It's not the same. 
He knew as she stared at the girders again, she had little in common with a typical Yankee fan. This is a unique era. Babe Ruth had two home runs today. I actually saw the second one. Babe's going to have a good year. I can feel it. Oh, he definitely will. Oh, is that right? And how do you know that, Miss... Jamel? French? Oh, no, no. She covered her mouth, trying not to laugh. Did I say something funny? No, no, you didn't. I'm laughing because I do have a unique name. She stared into his eyes. Charlie knew the look. What would Francine say to the old man if she saw him talking to this bright-eyed chickadee? Returning to the stands would be the smart move. But he wanted to know more about Jamel. You live around here? Before she could answer, the leather case erupted with a series of high-pitched tones and static. She backed away with a panicky look and spoke into the case. Now, Elf, it's just a malfunction, that's all. Hey, what is that? Some kind of radio? She stopped, still flustered. Right, radio. Are you with the army or something? It's none of my business, but I've never seen people carrying around a radio. It's really not that important. Her smile looked phony. Who's Elf? Are you in the army? Well, I, I'm on a mission of sorts. I don't understand. I'm, I'm sorry. She extended her tiny hand. My name is Charlie. I'm sorry, Charlie. She started to go away, but he caught her. Hey, was it something I said? No, maybe it's just better I don't get involved. This is all so precarious. I'm afraid I might change something. I know you don't understand. No, I don't. She paused again, staring into his eyes, and shrugged her shoulders. Enjoy the game. Enjoy the season. You won't see the likes of it again. With ambivalence in her eyes, she scurried toward the gate. Charlie took two steps and then stopped. Her mysterious nature made her even more appealing. He watched her frock swaying at the hips all the way to the turnstile. He stopped on the other side, and she gave him a quick wave with her fingers. As quickly as she had come into his life, she vanished in the stadium parking lot. He had no business chasing after her, but she had sent his head spinning. Without a second thought, he sprinted across the concrete and rushed through the turnstile. Where did you go? He chided himself as he surveyed the area. For a few moments, a hint of jasmine lingered in the fresher air. He checked the stadium and massive cars parked in the Bronx parking lot. That bright-eyed woman, tall and slender, along with her radio bag, had vanished like Houdini. He kicked an imaginary ball, then shook his head all the way back to the grandstand ramp. The trim green outfield grass rose above the ramp. Before he returned to his friends, Charlie looked toward the turnstile one more time. Letting her leave could only be described as the premier boner. As he took his seat, he heard Ray's prattling. Do you realize how many clean plays he's made? Who? asked Charlie. Tony the Wop. It's like he can't make an error. Charlie, still distracted, bit his thumbnail as Joel leaned over. Hey. What do you say we go outside after and see if we can catch the babe before he leaves? Swell, said Charlie. Something wrong, Charlie? Charlie lit another Lucky and shook his head. Nah, everything's just fine, bud. Everything's just fine. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 2 At his Bronx apartment, Charlie in his sleeveless undershirt sprawled across the sofa and listened to the radio but his mind drifted back to Jamal at the turnstile. More important than his attraction to her, his indecision concerning his pending marriage to Francine plagued him. The rumors of her infidelity would not go away, but neither would his ambition. 
He scrawled the batting averages on a white paper pad when the phone rang. Ruth had sunk to 275, but Garrick, who never got the headlines, had attained an impressive 447. The Yankees as a team were 10 and 5. He reached and fumbled for the phone. Well, I've been wondering what happened to you. Francine, darling! Don't darling me. I've been trying to contact you for three hours. You could have at the very least tried calling me. I suppose you're out at the baseball park again. Charlie gulped before he spoke. Francine, I know I take the Yankees a little too seriously. I knew it. Charlie, following those games is not the best use of your time. You eat, drink, and sleep the New York Yankees. But Francine... You don't see father out at one of those ball games, do you? Charlie paused and muttered slowly. No, Francine, I don't. You will find, as you move up the ladder, there comes added responsibility. Time must be structured around your job. Charlie rolled his eyes and held out the phone. Then he lit a cigarette. Look, I like the Yankees. What do you want from me? Well, in this life, Charlie, we can't always get what we want. Isn't that the God's honest truth? Are you trying to intimate something, Charlie? Her whiny tone annoyed him. I hope that's not the case, since I was only calling to see where you were. Francine, do you really want to get married? Of course. Father insists. Never mind your father. What do you want? The silence revealed more than he wanted to know. I will marry you, as planned, on September 30th. And if I did not want to marry you, do you think Mother and I would be spending our days planning for the wedding? Well... Do you think we'd be inviting guests for our engagement parting at the Gables on the Hudson? Everyone in mother and father's social circle will be at that party. My God, Charlie, all of that and you would imply that I don't want to marry you? What I think, Francine, is that you and I are spending less and less time together. She next alluded to the formal China selections, furniture for their new apartment, and a hundred aspects of her own agenda. Then she informed him about weekend plans with the family at the spacious Connecticut retreat house. He pinched the bridge of his nose until she finally hung up. Confused, he strutted over to the window and forcefully puffed on his cigarette as he watched the sun's last rays pierce the blue steel clouds over the city. Ending the relationship would jeopardize his position with the old man. E.B. Rumford might just release him if his daughter had been jilted. He vowed not to upset the old man in any way. Yet he had not even asked E.B. about taking off a day next week to catch some of the flyers including that young pilot, Lindbergh, before they attempted to cross the Atlantic from Long Island. Maybe things would get better away from the city in Connecticut, and he wouldn't have to risk throwing away his future. Something about the relationship rattled him from the beginning. Now the pressure ripped him apart. He longed for the solitude atop the Rumford Tower where he worked, to peruse the city at night from the gallery and sift through his burgeoning problems. Then he might make sense of it all. He drove his Chrysler 62, a gift from Francine, through the minimal traffic to lower Manhattan. The skyscraper cathedral's 31st to the 60th floors were illuminated against the dark sky and had become his special place in the world. He parked the car and stepped into the night air. The first spring leaves burgeoned through the trees and the flowery aromas sauntered about the plaza. The building's pervasive glow, visible 40 miles out at sea, captivated him. He walked under the plaza street lamps and wondered if he had the nerve to break it off the relationship. Then he headed for the Broadway entrance. 
As he looked skyward, he knew he would be jettisoning everything the building represented. They called it the Cathedral of Commerce because its rich Gothic architecture connoted a religious flavor. The fact that he could ascend 58 stories above the city and contemplate life sometimes gave him a sense of the divine. He passed under the eagle at the Broadway entrance as he did during the work week, wondering if his secretary had told E.B. about the Lindbergh thing on Long Island. A security guard waved him by and he entered the Marble Palace, a.k.a. the Rumford Tower, intricately carved within the Gothic style. The Grand Arcade would grace any European cathedral. Such opulence reminded him what E.B. Rumford's daughter offered. A secure future beckoned him within this building, and the Rumford's social position would assure him a comfortable life. He crossed the tiles as if he owned the building, and walked to the ornately carved arches around the elevator. This area always reminded him of a church confessional booth. Herbie shouted from across the lobby, Hey, Charlie! Charlie! Hey, bud, said Charlie. The greasy-haired Herbie crossed at the elevator, then spoke to Charlie. Herbie forever chewed on one or both cheeks before he spoke. Trouble on the home front again, Charlie? I know why you're here at night, Herb. I'll say it again. As head of operations, you're taking a big chance running booze out of the basement. They both stepped into the elevator. You gotta pay the bills. Herbie shut the outside door, and the car lurched, and they zoomed upward. Charlie held his stomach. I always wonder if this elevator will come crashing down. It's a long way up there. Charlie, there's a safety switch. What they call the air cushion zone. It don't crash. It can't crash. Listen, something else. It's time to ditch Francine. Oh, it's Sarone. I have it on good authority. You and your good authority. I have witnesses, Charlie. She's playing you for a sucker. Trying to please the old man because he likes you. Charlie closed his eyes most of the way to the top. He did not want to ruin his career. The door is open. He looked at Herbie and stepped onto the gallery above the city. His friend held the doors open. Thanks, Herb. I appreciate the information. I think. Hey, Charlie, drop her. E.B. likes you. He won't let you go. Herbie released the doors. Charlie meandered onto the gallery and the cooler, dank harbor air blew his thinning blonde hair back. He quickly lit a lucky and leaned toward his favorite view a span of lights and traffic reaching 25 miles out past Brooklyn. The cars crossed the bridge and zipped along the city streets like internal parts of some larger organism, and Jamela disappeared. Why had he been so dumb to let her pass through the turnstile? After what Herbie had just told him about Francine, he wished he had caught Jamel. He had no address or phone number, and he could vividly see her body flittering under the grandstand. He pictured that one final little wave with her fingers, and he could almost smell the jasmine as he spoke into the night. Dead End Thoughts. Once in a Lifetime. Chapter 3. In the early morning hours, Charlie drove his 62 along a narrow, muddy road toward Roosevelt Field on Long Island. The sun hid back the mist, and he questioned whether they would even fly this morning. He checked his watch. The old man had no problem with his taking the day off, but Francine had put a constraint on his free time, insisting that he meet her and the old man at the tower for lunch. The bumpy, monotonous ride resulted in spraying his shiny car with a muddy residue. A cigarette hung from his mouth as he slowed the 62 and approached a line of cars 
uniformed police and groups of people scattered over the field. The stuffy car exhaust mixed with the fresh moistened grass and dirt. He leaned out the window toward the motorcycle cop. Hey, bud, where do I park? Cop pointed across the grass. Looks kind of crummy to be flying. 25 grand to whoever makes it. I'll fly out for 25 grand. Lindbergh out there yet? I like him. They've already started rolling out his plane. He panned the field from his driver's window. Too muddy. At least it ain't raining. Charlie nodded and maneuvered the car across the grass. He gazed to his left and wondered why Lindbergh or any one of these guys would want to fly out on such a lousy day. It might be clearer out over the ocean, but incredibly risky over such a long distance. He parked the car on the grass and traipsed across the spongy field. In the commotion ahead as he circled, Jamel walked through the crowd. His stomach tingled as he mired in the mud. Dressed in a pale gray flight suit, she carried the same brown leather case strapped to her shoulder and had a set of field glasses around her neck. Charlie stumbled across the grass, slipping several times as he called out her name. Startled, she spun around with a fearful look over her freckled face, but she smiled when she saw him sliding on the grass. He breathed rapidly as he reached her. Jamel! Jamel, I knew I'd see you again. You did? I kept kicking myself for not getting your number or your address. Kicking yourself? Oh, I see. You're upset with yourself. Her sleek body, even more defined in the flight suit, possessed the same graceful movement and the jasmine intoxicated his senses. She would not get away this time. Are you involved in this thing? Prize across the Atlantic? I mean, you're wearing a flight suit. Oh, no. I'm here, Charlie, merely as an observer of history. History? You really think this guy's going to do it? She touched his arm as she spoke. Not just some guy. Charles Augustus Lindbergh. This is May 20th, 1927. We're standing at Roosevelt Field, right on the edge of history, Charlie. No one has ever crossed this ocean by air. Six people have died trying. The amazing thing about this flight was that he loaded so much fuel into the plane. By all rights, he shouldn't have been able to take off. She leaned closer and whispered. However, they constructed the struts and braces with aluminum or balsa. Very streamlined crap. Charlie perched on his toes, trying to view the action. Sounds like you have it all figured out, like it already happened. Maybe it has. She handed the glasses to him. The image of a small silver plane, blocks still wedged under the tires, came into view. He had trouble seeing the writing on the side. Take me to St. Louis? No, the spirit of St. Louis. She chuckled as Charlie lowered the glasses. I'm glad I found you again. I'm sorry I left the stadium so fast. I have my reasons. I'm sorry. You seemed a little nervous when I called out your name before. You running from something? She did not answer, and he peeked into the binoculars again. What are all those red containers? Gas cans. As I said, it was a very tricky maneuver to take off with all that weight. But he needed the fuel. I love things like this. The excitement, the daring, replied Charlie. He could almost feel the tension building. Almost as good as being at the ballpark. Well, it depends whether the Yanks are winning. Then she held his arm, her body tensing as she looked across the field. God, what a moment in time. If he makes it. Through the lenses, a lean young man with a huge crop of auburn hair traipsed around in army pants and a sweater. She nudged against Charlie and pointed, That's him! Charlie! 
You have no idea what it's like to view this. No idea. The key is the telephone wires. He has to clear the telephone wires. Most people of this era still have no grand vision as to what this flight means to the world. Everything will change now. They only see their heroes right now. This era? The 20s, of course. How can he clear those wires with all that fuel and the wind coming in, asked Charlie. No, he'll, he'll have the tailwind five miles an hour when he takes off. He snapped his fingers. Now I know. You're from the National Weather Service. That's why you carry the case. Nice try. I'll figure it out. Oh, you will, will you? He studied Lindbergh and tried to imagine himself in the same position. If he really doesn't make it, people will go crazy. A hint of sadness swept your azure eyes. This flight will make him famous at such a cost, fame. They wouldn't let up on him. This side, he will end up destroying its heroes. Heroes are so necessary, Charlie. How do you know all this? I apologize. It isn't my mission to be talking about things past. It might make some radical time change. Radical time change? You never know how a changed event will play out. Most things you change on the timeline come to a dead end, but you do risk affecting more than you bargained for. Okay, I'll buy that. She sounded as if she just got out of the loony bin. He raised the binoculars again. After checking the runway, Lindbergh went over to the windsock, and seconds later he stripped into his flying suit. Charlie sensed the exhilarating anxiety as Lindbergh climbed up and into the plane. How would he pilot the small craft down the rain-soaked runway and clear the wires and woods at the far end? A gaggle of men moved toward the propeller and pulled it down. The motor sputtered but finally caught. A buzz reverberated across the misty morning, but the engine sounded weak. He's just letting it idle. You'll hear him tune it up in a second, said Jamel, looking ahead. I know. You're a reporter. Nope. I give up. She clutched his shoulder. Mulligan and Bodecker. Sounds like a slick law firm. They're pushing the wings, Charlie. 7.52 a.m., May 20th, 1927. God, what a brave man. The small silver plane, with the single occupant inside, and tires skipping in the mud, move awkwardly down the field. The nose pointed ahead and the wings dipped a few times as the plane hit uneven ground. Oh, horse feathers, he's not going to make it up, said Charlie. He'll make it. Charlie covered his eyes but peeked through his fingers. All that gasoline? He's moving along, but he's not even in the air, Jamel. It's okay, Charlie. Tomorrow night he'll be in Paris. Lindbergh and his tiny craft raced toward the ravine at the end of the runway. The spirit of St. Louis would tumble into the ravine at high speed if he did not get that plane up in a few seconds. Come on, come on! The plane catapulted into the air, and Charlie jumped up and down as if he were at the ballpark. See? said Jamel. He did it! He did it! The plane bounced off the ground just before the ravine and then back into the air. He didn't do it. Charlie grabbed her as Lindbergh hit the field again. She spoke softly. Just a little more. Just a little more. He hugged her again as the spirit of St. Louis lifted into the air above a group of onlookers and a tractor beyond. Once he cleared the ravine, Lindbergh soared skyward. Charlie thrust his arms into the air. Yes! The tiny plane engine pushed to the limit, wafted upward from the crowd and missed the telephone wires by only 15 or 20 feet. Jamel had her arms clasped around Charlie. What a man! Why, thank you. She grinned and rustled her hand over his shoulders. 
He lingered only inches from her bronze, freckled face and soft, wavy hair. The urge to kiss her became too much. He puckered up, but she turned toward the far end of the field. Lindbergh traced the undulating terrain beyond the field and simply disappeared into the May mist. Getting off the ground proved miraculous, but crossing the Atlantic Ocean seemed laughable. Charlie soon centered on Jamal and her bizarre reflections about the flight. He held her arm as they stood on the grass. So where are you from, and what's this mission you talked about? I live in the city. Oh, we all have our missions. Where's your car? I'll walk you back. Well, I don't have a car. Well, you know, Charlie, there's something very likable about you. Charlie smiled and quickly lit a cigarette. I have one of those faces, and I have a car. Besides, I think you're the bee's knees. I beg your pardon. I think you're wonderful is what I'm saying. She smiled and turned her head upward for a second. You're coming back to New York with me. She hesitated. Oh, all right. In the car, Jamel held the leather case in her lap and continued talking about Lindbergh, but once on the open road, she expanded her dissertation to include current events. Charlie found it odd how she spoke as if she were a historian or had some prescient knowledge. Charlie, this is a golden age. Golden age? Yes, everything is starting to happen technologically on Earth. Henry Ford is producing gasoline-powered cars by the thousands. Edison is still alive, but it wasn't that long ago before he brought electricity into practical application. But no one ever talks about Tesla. To be in a period where Albert Einstein... I'd like to go out with you again. Jamel's lackadaisical response had him wondering whether she had really agreed. That would be fun. Think of it. Radio waves just being localized or broadcast, as they say. Video and the internet are years away. Excuse me, Jamel, but I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I know. She smiled. Mystified, he looked at his watch as he drove into the city. Francine would be livid if he missed the luncheon appointment. But Francine would have to wait. Jamel asked him about his job, and Charlie talked about his position at the tower, and told her everything except his engagement to Francine. Well, I'm set for life. Guaranteed job, moving right up the ladder, money, stocks. I have so many stocks and so much property. See, the old man, E.B., he liked me right away. I'm set, Jamel. Set for life. She squeezed his wrist, and her crisp blue eyes were serious. I wouldn't call that being set for life, Charlie. Forget about planning everything out. Take the moment, like we just did at Lindy's flight. It's the most valuable asset you have. Lindy's flight? That's what they'll call him, Lucky Lindy. I guess he'll have to be lucky if he makes it. He will. Jamel, where exactly do you live? Oh, you can drop me at Columbus Circle near Central Park. Okay. He gazed down at the leather case as he turned the wheel and shifted. That case and her bold and varied references had him baffled, and he noticed how she would peer out the window as if she had never been to the city. A few minutes later, he rounded Columbus Circle. While we're at the circle, let me bring you to your place. You can drop me right here, under that sign with the woman's face smiling inside the tire. You live under the Kelly Tire sign? Something distracted her as he looped around the circle. You said you have lots of stocks. Oh, I'm loaded with stocks. Bought them all on cheap margin. Dump whatever stocks you have, Charlie. Do yourself a favor. This is the 1920s, for goodness sakes. 
He pulled off the road, but he'd reached his limit with her private knowledge and intimations. Do you work on Wall Street? Who are you? And what's in that case? Oh, I'm from the future. She said it so casually. Charlie stared at her, and she smiled. Really? Right. He took out his luckies again and lit a cigarette. Tobacco, the scourge of the 20th century. He raised his brows as he inhaled. The leather case beeped as it had in the ballpark. She pulled at the case and unzipped an odd, attaching beige fabric with a crackling rip. Charlie leaned over. Inside, a magenta screen glowed brightly. He alternated glances between Jamal and the box. Tell me this is some kind of joke. No joke. This is Elf. Elf? Me, Charlie. A voice spoke from inside the box. Good afternoon, Charlie. What's the gag? That's a radio, powered by a battery. Very clever. She grinned at Charlie's consternation. Elf, tell him you're real. I'll have you know that I am a consciousness exceeding all of your 20th century libraries. I've been working too hard. Pressures, too many pressures. Listen, how can a box be talking to me? Someone blew a horn and he steered the 62 under the billboard sign. Because I'm on a mission back here, Charlie. A critical mission affecting all of the future. Getting involved with this gentleman is open to debate. Hey, if... what am I saying? He hit himself in the forehead. I'm arguing with a box. My apologies, Charlie. I was more questioning Jamal's judgment. Is he a robot? He took another drag on the cigarette and pitched it out the window as a bright yellow message covered the screen. Robot is an antiquated term. Jamel held his wrist, but Charlie still stared at the screen. Why don't we meet at the ballpark again? When's the next game? Yanks play Philly again on Tuesday. I think you'd better tell me what's going on here, Jamel. I will, but not now. Give me your number. I can't take the chance of having a phone. I could be tracked if I have a phone. Why are there people after you? Jamel nodded. Well, there could be. It's just a matter of time. We have to be extremely careful. You can't mention this to anyone, Charlie. Charlie quickly scribbled his phone number on a crumpled envelope as she opened the door and bopped around to his window. He handed the scrap through the open window. My number. She leaned forward and whispered, I believe as they do say, Charlie, I have your number. Then she pulled back and walked whimsically along the circle. When she reached the Central Park entrance, she turned and gave him the turnstile wave. But Charlie, so smitten by her and by what she had said, shut off the car and yanked out the keys. He fumbled with the door handle, and then he raced after her. This time, she would not get away. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 4. In her gray flight suit, an elf strapped to her shoulder, Jamal moved briskly through the park. Charlie, his mind in flux, rumbled like a polar bear across the grass. She claimed she had arrived from the future. She had a talking box named Elf. She had been recruited on a secret mission. And she had to be one of the most gorgeous women he had ever met. Jamal! Jamal! She stopped near the road as he trotted forward. I was hoping you'd follow me, but I didn't know. She was testing you. I need your help. My help? Come on, come with me. 
She took his arm and they crossed onto one of the side streets jammed with older apartment buildings from the last century. Okay, you're from the future. I have no idea how. If you are from the future, what are you doing in 1927? Jamel stopped on the sidewalk under the building shadows. Her blue eyes sparkled in the daylight glimmer and she seemed hesitant before she spoke. I am from Earth's future. As humans moved out into space, Charlie looked skyward and pointed. Up there? Yes. I was sent back in time, and I am here purely by accident. See, we sent our rarer ship. What's a rarer ship? He grabbed his luckies, and they proceeded down the sidewalk. Rara is a Sagian term, meaning zone of time travel. Perhaps an understanding of the Sagians is in order. The Sagians are another race of beings. Okay, answered Charlie, still holding the cigarette pack. We are under attack. We were the allies, those of us who were left, with the Sagians. The plan was for the first Rara ship to simply go back in time. Simply. But who was attacking? The Avegis. Not life in the sense that you and I know life. They were constructed by a distant race, but the Avegis turned and destroyed their creators and moved aggressively into the galaxy. They nearly conquered us. He listened intently. With a genuine credibility, she said that the original Rara ship had moved back in time to warn their Sajin and human predecessors of the pending attack, but the ship malfunctioned, probably because of the attack, and skidded across time and space nearer to the Earth than the planet Sajian. The Rara ship carried the archives of the combined consciousness, planetary histories, and direct evidence of the Avegis attack. The Sajians had sent Jamel back to find the Rara ship, and retrieved the archives. She brought them into a narrow brick alley, located even deeper within the building maze, away from the park, her flat overlooked the river. They entered through an opening below the front stairway and took a freight elevator upward. Soon they were in an open area with a wooden floor and brick walls. Her apartment boarded the large outside window. Charlie shook his head when Elf automatically opened the door. He walked by a metal stairway and into the apartment. It looked like any apartment, wire mesh skylights above, expansive floorboards, and modest furniture. A sweet, almost soothing smell that he could not identify floated through the air. Then Alf actually split the inner wall. A ten-foot-high blue door materialized into the room, and a series of colored lights blinked around the frame. A tilted, oversized chrome dish mounted atop a square black box with smaller side panels, rose upward into the middle of the room. A full Makeda projection, like a movie screen, glowed on the back wall. Jamal stood with her arms crossed as the wall door shut. Charlie pointed at the dish. What's that? He pulled a cigarette from his pack, but she cautioned him against smoking near her equipment. Then she set Elf on the adjacent table. This is my transmitter. When I complete it, I will be able to broadcast, to use a contemporary term, to the system you call Capella, which is actually two binary stars, the home of the Sagians. But I need the archives before I can send out anything. Complex panel consoles boarded the map bottom. She said something to Elf, and the projection assumed a green glow, and a brilliant orange sweep of pulsating particles formed a trail across the United States ending in an area of upstate New York. Charlie, dumbfounded, stood motionless. I must be dreaming. No, this is all real. 
I did arrive here last February. I had to implode my rarer ship upstate. Then I had to ascertain where I was in time, and I realized I could not go back and I was trapped in what you might call 1927. I knew I could build a transmitter capable of sending a signal to Sagian, the planet that orbits one of the binary stars. I began work here on the transmitter. I, we, began work on the transmitter, and we constructed the wall monitor. Where did you get the dough? asked Charlie. Elf has printing capacities among his many talents. All denominations, all countries of this time and period. Convenient. Is that the rarer ship's trail upstate on the map? No, that's my ship's trail. I followed the original rarer ship as it projected on the Sagian instruments, but I arrived somehow before the first rarer ship. This hasn't gone the way we had hoped. In essence, you're waiting for your ship to come in. Correct. When the ship arrives, I'll get the archives, and hopefully I will have completed the transmitter by then. But I live in the constant shadow of the Avigis. Why? You said you escaped the attack. Yes, I escaped, but the Avigis knew what was happening. They vowed revenge. The Avigis were coming after me, Charlie. They possessed great powers. They could crush your skull with one hand. That isn't their greatest asset. Sounds pretty convincing to me. The beings who constructed them gave them the ability to alter their appearance. They could come back here and appear as humans. Oh boy. But they're vulnerable. Because they possess such great energies, they can implode if their outer sheath is penetrated. So they aren't invincible, but their brutality is well known throughout the galaxy of my time. She slowly raised her thin brows and smiled, but Charlie remained stunned. I need a drink. The United States is currently under a prohibition law. Hey, if you want hooch, you can get it. Oh yes, alcohol. Many will become rich because of it. Well, I'd like to get in on that action. He studied the transmitter again and then looked up at her. Jamal, what you're saying is all of this, it's, it's beyond me. You want to help? Me? What can I do to help you? She brought him over to a black and pink flowered sulfur and put her hand on his knee as she spoke. I need a collaborator, someone who knows this time period. You seem to be doing very well in 1927. Thank you, but you're of this time. I need your help, and I need a place to transmit. Okay, now I get it. We're talking about strong pulses here. I know you work at the tower, and you want to use your transmitter on top of the tower. Ah, so you were watching me first. What else do you know about me? You are engaged to the boss's daughter. Well, that's another story. I suppose you know all that, too. Upset? I should be, but I can't even believe this is happening. Charlie, we're talking about preventing Sagians and humanity's demise at the hands of the Avigis. It never should have happened. The Sagians were so advanced, yet they were, as you say in your contemporary linguistics, asleep at the switch. Charlie thought for a few seconds. Well, I guess I could talk to Herbie. Herbie? He's the head of operations at the tower, and he owes me. I caught him running hooch out of the tower basement. He made me swear not to tell anyone. You know, he has a wife and kids. Could he get the transmitter to the gallery? He looked at the dish. You know about the gallery, too? Yes, it's an excellent location. So you were following me at the stadium. 
She smiled and her bright eyes caught him in a way that he did not feel the need to challenge her. Yeah, we can get the transmitter up there. How did you know I worked at the Rumford Tower? I have surveyed the digitalized records from the future. He absorbed the future as we passed back through time. I checked the personnel records from 1927 of the highest building in the world presently, except for the Eiffel Tower in France. But that structure is too much out in the open. I needed to transmit as high as possible. And you found me, little old Charlie Russo from Jefferson Mills, Ohio. He stepped closer and studied her freckles and looked into her bright blue eyes. Why me? Because you are close to E.B. Rumford, who is, as you say in your time, the big cheeser. No, the big cheese, he said as he laughed. All this time I thought you kind of went for me. Hey, uh, if this is all true like you say, all I have to do is have Herbie get this contraption up to the gallery. Sure, I'll help you. This would eliminate a great hurdle for me, but I still have problems. I need raw materials. I have to rendezvous with the first rarest ship once it pierces the continuum between dimensions. The what between the what? You don't have to understand this knowledge. Point being, the Aegis will come back to 1927, believe me. She told him that Alf would alert her to any change in the continuum, and a trail would appear on the ship. Charlie studied the wall projection, turned to the transmitter, and tried to sort through the fantastic events. He had just agreed to help a woman from Earth's future, and had stiffed Francine and E.B. at the office lunch. Would he now allow himself to fall in love with this woman in the gray flight suit? A woman who he now felt the need to win over. He half believed her story, but found himself liking her a lot. You make it very tempting. She smiled, crossed her legs, and leaned back on the sofa. So, do you want to join forces? Charlie stroked his chin, intrigued by the offer. I like excitement. You've got a deal. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 5. The weekend brought Charlie to the Rumford's Connecticut house. In 1919, E.B. hired the architectural firm of Hilborn and Gross to construct a retreat in the country. Modeled on Washington's Mount Vernon in Virginia, this estate had the same unique two-story portico as the president's home. Like Washington, the porticos at the Redwood Library in Newport, Rhode Island, where the Rumfords had their yacht and a summer home, impressed E.B. In the late afternoon sunshine, Charlie steered the 62 around a winding drive covered with maples and oaks. At least four of the Rumford cars, including the Packard, were parked around the circular drive. To the right were opened arched arcades that E.B. said Washington called colonnades, and they linked the two side buildings with the mansion. Even the weather vane, a bird with an olive branch in its beak, duplicated the one atop Washington's cupola. Once shown inside by the butler, Charlie concocted an elaborate fib about his car actually being towed from Columbus Circle on the day of the Lindbergh flight, fit like a jigsaw puzzle piece into his story about the 62 having broken down. Both Francine and E.B. believed him, but Charlie hid more than the truth. Jamel had given him a black box, small enough to fit in the palm of his hand, yet able to transmit and receive clearly at great distances. He used this portable type of telephone as if it were a toy. All weekend, he had only thought of Jamel and the plans they had made to attend a New York City parade for Lindbergh later that month. 
The importance of her mission overshadowed his faltering relationship with Francine. No matter what the implications with the old man, Charlie planned to sever the engagement this weekend. He said very little at the Saturday night dinner. Seated around the table were the Rumford's close friends, the Dillinghams from Boston, probably the most boring and snobbish people other than the Rumfords he had ever met. Their son, Will, Francine's sometimes frustrated suitor, annoyed him all night. Charlie's resentment grew as he listened to the puffy talk and the condescending baloney of Francine's brother, George. Charlie told Herbie that George's jaw usually hung halfway to the gold-rimmed china plates. Hardly had I finished playing the chorus when the mayor strolls up to our party and asks if we will attend dinner. It was a black tie affair, as we had left our things back east. Charlie glanced at the taciturn E.B. smoking a pipe at the end of the table. Even Francine thought George's comments had some unique element of humor. The mayor, of course, realized my expertise in architecture and provided the entire party with the proper attire. The elder Dillingham, an old blowhard with a long nose and a crop of gray scattered hair, laughed. George, you are irrefragable. Simply irrefragable. Francine had done something to her sandy hair, perhaps bleached it and painted her lips a deeper shade of red. She added her squeaky voice to the conversation. George always meets all the right people. Charlie wanted to leave the table and call Jamel from outside. The conversation turned to business, specifically Wall Street, and Dillingham lectured everyone on the potential of the stock market. Charlie cringed when Dillingham turned toward him. What is your opinion of the market, Charles? He thought about Jamel's advice about his stocks. Perhaps we should exercise some caution. Caution? I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, Charlie, said E.B., Albert and his associates have prepared a comprehensive stock package for your approval. My apologies, Mr. Dillingham. I didn't know. Dillingham, still stunned, pointed his finger at Charlie. These stocks are guaranteed to perform. President Coolidge likes the market. Well, he said we should just let business do what business needs to do. You must agree with that, young man. Well, and just who do you favor in 1928? Well, I don't think my opinions are important to a man in your position. I'm sure you have more pressing things to talk about, Mr. Dillingham. No, I insist. After a long pause, Charlie spoke in a lower voice. Well, Al Smith. What was that? I said I like Al Smith. Governor Smith? Why, he's... he's... The blue-haired Mrs. Rumford erupted. Catholic! E.B., you have a future son-in-law who favors a presidency from Rome, exclaimed Dillingham. Charlie stood. I think I need to step outside. Excuse me. Francine's mouth opened like a drawbridge as he walked along the table. He heard rumblings as he exited through the drawing room and passed a servant who opened the front door. Once on the portico, he descended the stairs to the adjacent stucco garage and took a position in back of the garage as he removed the black box. Sixty-seven miles from Jamel's flat, he pushed the tiny green button and it glowed. Then, as if she was standing next to him, he heard her voice. My God, I can't believe this thing works. Did you break it off with Francine? No. Charlie, it's imperative you end this relationship now. Imperative? Why? She spoke after a long pause. 
Your life could be in danger if you don't break it off soon. Me in danger? Elf and I found something in his archives. You can be killed if you continue the relationship. If it continues much longer, I'll kill myself. I can't give you specifics. I want to see you when I get back, he said. Elf and I need to travel to New Jersey. I have to get parts in Hoboken for my transmitter. I feel as if I'm racing against time, Charlie. The rarest ship's archives are useless if I don't have a transmitter. Without it, the present-day Sageons will never know of the future of Aegis' attack. Jamal, am I really going to die? Short silence followed again. You have until August, Charlie. Believe me, you'll die if you keep this Francine thing going. Just end it. Well, it's not that easy, Jamal. I know. I'll talk to you, he said, looking back toward the house. He pushed the red button and stared at the box, and her voice disappeared. Yes, he put the box in his Suko pocket. On the portico, Francine stood in her white, shimmering short dress. With Jamel's dire warnings, her presence took on a new meaning. Perhaps he should end it with Francine right now. They would be alone, and he had already antagonized everyone inside. He walked across the drive as she came down the steps, her hand on the white banister, but she did not appear upset. Francine, you and I have to talk. Well, you left rather abruptly. She looked away from him. Well, I guess they're all pretty upset with me. Oh, they'll get over it. I actually thought it was quite amusing. Listen, you have to prepare some remarks for next month's gala, our quote-unquote engagement party at the Gables on the Hudson. Listen, Francine, if you want to call it off. She gazed reticently across the grounds. We can't call it off, Charlie. I can't challenge Father. You and I have to live a social marriage. Well, I don't want that. There has to be more. There is nothing more. Prepare the remarks for the Gables, Charlie. Father's office will read it over, she said, looking up at him. If we're trapped, Charlie, then just have to live within it. She turned, drifted back up the steps, and crossed the portico before she re-entered the house. A secure life mattered little if the Grim Reaper awaited him in August. Fearful, Charlie stared at the long brick house and grounds, aware he may have consented to what might prove a potentially deadly relationship. Fate indeed brings Charlie and Jamel together at the Lindbergh flight, which begins the long quest to accomplish her mission. And following them are the agents of the Bureau of Investigation, a precursor to the FBI, as well as those who want Jamel stopped. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and it's time to celebrate the Lindbergh Parade in New York City. That's the ticker tape parade, which becomes Charlie's undoing. Hail the